I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. I'm, uh, I'm going to go kind of around the world uh, on, on something. Uh, we'll, for the sake of a title, we'll call this Believing in the Name of Jesus. But I want to um, uh, establish a foundation for getting there rather than just jump in and, and um, uh, go to Scriptures as we might normally do, or often do anyway, about um, what the Bible says about believing in His name and so forth. I want to uh, take a look at the, uh, at the life of Paul. And uh, and show you some things about that. I've been uh, I've been doing some studying. Um, I haven't really done any studying on the life of Paul since I was in Bible school, um, and uh, and I I know more now than I knew then, so I'm my study's better. But um, uh, you know as well as I do that when Jesus was raised from the dead, Acts chapter two talks about the power of Pentecost, the power of the Holy Ghost that came down. Jesus said, "Wait in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high." Jesus told them very specifically that the outpouring of the Holy Ghost would be an outpouring of power. And as a result, they began to speak with other tongues, which gave them supernatural power in prayer. And then they began to do signs and wonders and miracles. There were healing miracles and things that took place. And not everybody was happy about that. The, uh, the Jewish leaders certainly were not. They threatened uh, the disciples uh, not to preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus and, and so forth. And they recognized. Acts chapter 4 goes into some detail. 3 and 4 goes into some detail about the recognition that it was the name of Jesus that did the work. Uh, let, me, um, let me interrupt myself to, to kind of give you the premise of why I'm going the way that I'm going. If, it, if it's the name of Jesus that does the work, then why are so few things done in the name of Jesus in Christians' lives? It's got to be something more than just the word, Jesus. It's got to be something more than just the name, Jesus. That's where I'm headed with this. So anyway, the church begins to grow. People start getting saved. Uh, 5,000 people get saved. On, uh, no, 3,000 people got saved on the day of Pentecost. 5,000 people get saved because of the, the healing of the crippled man in Acts chapter 3. And, uh, and the Bible says the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So we know that there were 120 in the upper room. 3,000 got saved on the day of Pentecost. 5,000 got saved in Acts chapter 3. So there's a minimum of 8,120 people that got saved in Jerusalem. Chapter 6 comes along and tells us how they began to, to organize some things. People were being left out just because of the size of the crowd. And so they picked seven men to wait tables. Now, the qualifications for waiting tables in, in the early days of the church was pretty steep. Notice it says in chapter 6, it says, uh, here's the, the plan. Wherefore, brethren, verse 3, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. Notice three, care, uh, three qualifications. Full of the Holy Ghost. I'm sorry, first it says honest report, honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. There's something else you need to see there, just as kind of a side thought. You can be full of the Holy Ghost and not be full of wisdom. If that weren't the case, he wouldn't have identified both. He wanted people that were honest, full of the Holy Ghost, and who had wisdom. Which means you can be honest and full of the Holy Ghost and not have wisdom. And so it tells us the number of men that they chose, the seven that they chose, and it talks about one of them named Stephen. Skip down with me to uh, uh, verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Let me read that again. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Notice he's performing miraculous acts in Jerusalem. And it was not a secret. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines and Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. Now, again, just as a side note, arguing with a guy that's full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom is probably not smart. But that's what they did. And they were, verse 10, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. So not only did he have the wisdom to know how to answer, he answered in the spirit of love. And they couldn't resist it. Now, chapter 7 tells us about how Stephen was brought before the, uh, the end of, last part of chapter 6 and then the, uh, uh, the whole of chapter 7 tells us about how Stephen was brought before the high priest and accused of preaching Jesus who said he would destroy the temple and raise it up in three days and uh, do away with the customs of the Jews. So the high priest questions him about this, and, and chapter 7 is Stephen's defense. Now, at the end of chapter 7, it gives us some information. Um, this defense, which there was a great crowd of, of witnesses to, 
Notice in verse 51, here's his conclusion to his defense. He said, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do you. Now, please notice something. Stephen realized that the deck was stacked against him. He's not trying to change anybody's mind. He knows that's not going to happen. His defense is, here's why Jesus is the Son of God. But then he concludes with, I know this is not going to do any good. He presented the case, but he didn't try to get anybody saved. He told them the truth, but he knew exactly what was coming. Which of the fathers, verse 52, have, uh, which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom you have now, of, you, of whom you have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. Folks, this is when people hate the things of God, there winds up nothing left for them to say. They have to take action of violence. This is pretty gross. It literally means they bit chunks of flesh off of it. But he being full of the Holy Ghost. Looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing on the right hand of God. Uh, I would submit to you that the Bible says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. If he's standing up when Stephen sees him, he's standing up ready to do something. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. I guess that means stuck their fingers in their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Knox translation says he fell asleep in the Lord. Now, folks, stoning didn't kill him. When Jesus is standing at the right hand of of God, when Stephen saw the heavens opened and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, I have no doubt in my mind that Jesus is standing there ready to deliver him if he'll accept his deliverance. Paul in chapter 11 of Hebrews talked about how that martyrs endured tortures not accepting their deliverance. That's the phrase that he used, not accepting their deliverance that they might have a better resurrection. Not accepting their deliverance. That sounds like they had a choice, doesn't it? Well, did the Holy Ghost miss it when he said it that way? Or is he trying to tell us something? He's trying to tell us something. In this case, Stephen fell asleep in the Lord. He chose to go on to be with Jesus rather than to have Jesus come and deliver him. But here's the point. That's just a side note. Here's the point I want you to see. Saul, who later becomes Paul, hears his defense. He hears everything he preaches about Jesus and can't deny one part of it. He knows of the signs and wonders and miracles that that Stephen has done in Jerusalem. That's part of the reason why they're trying to attack him. Because it's tough to argue against a miraculous work. And if you've got a guy that's doing miracles, your best bet is to get rid of them so you don't have to answer the miracles that are taking place. Which is the whole reason that they went against Stephen to begin with. So Saul knows about the miracles. He hears the preaching of Jesus. He sees Stephen's death, which had to be different than just your average everyday stoning. Whatever an average everyday stoning is, the Jews are going to know if anybody knows. And none of those things were enough to persuade Paul. The signs and the wonders didn't do it. The preaching of Stephen who the Bible says he was full of wisdom and people couldn't resist the wisdom with which he spake. By the way, Paul says later on, I know what people say about me that I'm not a good speaker. Stephen could, could preach circles around Paul if we have, if we are to, to believe the, uh, the descriptions in the Bible. But that didn't do it for Paul. And, and you know, I'm talking about Saul who later becomes Paul. Forgive me if I don't get the names straight or keep them straight. Chapter eight, verse one. And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, another translation says 
Saul was consenting, uh, goes, it goes further, it, it amplifies it in, in different translations, talking about how willing Saul was for this guy to be killed, how that not only was he consenting to it, it was agreeable to it, he was one of the, the, the uh, chief people behind it as far as his attitude and, and willingness was concerned. And then notice that it says at that time there was a persecution. Many other translations, most other translations, identify it in some way to show that this event started the persecution. There was a wave of persecution that began. One translation, uh, uh, the BBE translation says, uh, and from that day forward, there began a great persecution. In other words, this event, when the Jews finally decided they've had enough of these tongue-talking, miracle-working Christians, we are finally going to do away with one. I don't know if that was their intent to begin with, but when they couldn't resist what Philip, uh, what uh, Stephen said, and he blamed them for the death of Jesus and, and the persecution of the prophets in the past. That was just too much for them, and they killed him. I don't know if they were swept away in a rage. I don't know if that's what they originally planned. I don't know what the deal was, but that's what it ended up with. And that sparked a great persecution that scattered Christians all throughout Samaria and Judea. The apostles stayed steady. They stayed in Jerusalem. But it sounds like everybody else tried to get out of town. Verse 2, and devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church. Now, this is what I want you to see. Uh, here's, it starts telling us a little bit about who Saul is. He's heard the preaching of Jesus. He's seen or heard or both the miracles that Stephen and the other apostles did. He has no intention whatsoever to be a part of this tongue-talking miracle-working group. We know from Paul's own testimony he was... A uh, Pharisee, of, uh, um, a Jew of the Jew, a Hebrew among Hebrews, meaning nobody cared about the law of Moses more than he did. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Nobody was stricter in the keeping of the of the, the law and the tradition of the elders and that kind of stuff. Circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, all that kind of stuff. He was the fast track golden boy, and this what put him on, what really put him on that fast track, because the high priest who didn't want to deal with these Christians anyway found somebody that was willing. To take things under his own control. He's willing to be the hitman. Paul was an assassin. He was a terrorist if there ever was one. It says uh, in verse 3, let me read this from some other translation. It says, uh, uh, the American Standard says, But Saul laid waste to the church, entering into every house and dragging men and women committed and committed them to prison. I like the, the, another translation that says this. It says, But Paul was burning with hate against the church going into every house and taking men and women and putting them in prison. So you get the point. Paul is consumed. He's obsessed with doing away with these people that talk about Jesus. You see that? Chapter 9. Verse 1. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings, Another translation. Let me give this to you from other translations. Uh, the word slaughter is the word murder, by the way. So other translations say things like Paul kept threatening to murder the Lord's disciples. Paul was committed to, um, uh, to threats of murder and so forth. That's what it's talking about. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter or murder against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, anybody preaching Jesus or believing in Jesus, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he's already been in working in Jerusalem, going from house to house. We're talking Nazi-type stuff. We're talking Gestapo-type stuff. Breaking into people's homes to see if they have anything to do with Jesus, or, or whatever. I mean, you can look for Bibles in those days. They didn't have those. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. So I'm not sure exactly what he's looking for, but he's going through house to house searching to try to find people to put in prison. He's committed to, to doing away with, even to the death, all those that he can. That's the kind of guy this was. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went into the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues. Jerusalem's not enough. He's going to go further than that. That if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, why is he trying to go to Damascus? Damascus is the capital of Syria. It was then, still is. Why is he trying to go to Syria? Because 
people have split from Jerusalem. They've left town because of the, the, the going to house to house and the wave of persecution that started there. He's not willing just to get them out of town. He wants to chase them down wherever they went. And he starts in Damascus. Verse 3, and as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Notice verse 6, and he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. We know the rest of the story, how that three days later Ananias comes and, and uh, lays hands on him and he receives his sight and, and so forth. But I want you to stop and think about it from Paul's point of view and Paul's perspective for a moment. He is filled with rage against the Christians. He's filled with rage. He has no desire whatsoever to be associated with these tongue-talking, miracle-working Christians other than to be the one responsible to put them in prison, to shut them up. Right? And then he meets Jesus. Now, who is Paul expecting Jesus to be? When he said, who art thou, Lord? That's a real question. Because in the Jewish religion, who would he expect? The Jews don't believe in the Holy Ghost. They don't believe in the three in one. They believe our God is one and that's it. Even though there are scriptures in the Old Testament talking about the Son, even though there are scriptures talking about the Spirit... That's not, that doesn't compute to the Jew. You remember Jesus tied up the Pharisees when he said, when David said, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstools. He said, how could the Lord have a Lord above him? How could David be talking to one Lord, meaning Jesus, and it refer to another one named Lord, which would be God the Father? They had no concept of that. That's why when Jesus started talking about my father and I are one, every time that came out of his mouth, people wanted to kill him. Because the Jewish religion says God is one. So who is Paul expecting this to be? Now, in the Old Testament, the only time God ever appeared was people like Abraham, Moses, or one of the prophets. Paul certainly is not in that class. Nor would he expect to be in that class. So when he says, who art thou, Lord, who is he thinking it could be? I don't think he thought it could be anybody. And that's what caused him to be so astonished. And then when Jesus says, it's me. I'm not sure exactly where Paul's oh snap moment was. But somewhere it had to compute for him. Oh, goodness gracious. Look at all the stuff I've done to fight against you. Which, by the way, was Jesus opening line. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Paul thought he was persecuting, Saul thought he was persecuting the church. Jesus said, you persecute the church, you're persecuting me. When people come against you, don't take it personal. They're fighting against God. And God seems to have a way to take care of those things. So when Jesus identifies himself, Paul says immediately, what would you have me to do? These two questions rule Paul's life. Who are you, Lord? And what would you have me to do? Fast forward to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, probably um, somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 years has passed. 15 to 18 years maybe has passed. We don't know exactly when Acts chapter 9 took place. We know that Acts chapter 20 was 20 years after the day of Pentecost. But we don't know exactly where Acts chapter 9 falls into that, uh, that time frame. I would assume that it would be in the early stages, but there's no way to confirm that one way or another. So I'm, I'm guessing 15, maybe 18 years later, Acts chapter 19 takes place. Um, well, let's just read the whole thing. Verse 1, And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? Folks, this is one of the great scriptures that show you that salvation is not receiving the Holy Ghost. That doesn't mean you don't get a measure of the Holy Ghost at salvation. You do. Jesus breathed on his disciples in John chapter 20 and said, Receive the Holy Ghost, and they were saved. 
But there's a difference in what the Bible calls receiving the Holy Ghost, meaning the baptism of the Spirit, the Acts chapter 2 experience, the Pentecostal experience, and being saved. They're not the same thing. He said, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said unto him, we have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, under what then are you baptized? Wouldn't make sense for him to be saved and never have heard of the Holy Ghost. And they answered and said unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him, which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, they, the Holy Ghost came on them and they spake with tongues and prophesied. Notice in chapter, in verse five, that's their salvation experience. Verse six is when they were filled with the Spirit and spake with other tongues and prophesied. And all the men were about twelve. And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months. Disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when the divers, when divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. You know, it's a it's a, a, an interesting thing to me. There's a lot of times in our lives where we never expect to be associated with places that we wind up. Paul certainly didn't expect to be associated with tongue-talking, miracle-working Christians. Yet now he is one. I think it's I think it would be a good practice for us to be careful to say what we won't do in life, because invariably that's where we wind up. Better just take a position that I'll go wherever you want me to go, Lord. And notice that's the reason why Paul is in the position that he is, is because he's asked the questions, who are you, Lord, and what do you want me to do? Well, this must be what Jesus wants him to do. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, verse 11, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, the word vagabond is uh, translated itinerant in most other other uh, translations. It means roving uh, where it talks about the vagabond Jews. It means that they didn't they weren't planted anywhere. It wasn't it wasn't like they had a, a specific purpose or, or 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 they were nomads in, in that sense. They just went around from town to town or city to city trying to see what they could do as far as um, supposedly casting the devil out of people for money. So then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And there were seven sons of one Siva, a Jew and a chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, and overcame them and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this was known to all the Jews and the Greeks also dwelling at, Drew, at Ephesus. And fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also which used curious arts, that means occult practices and stuff, brought their books together and burned them before all men, and they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. I figured this out a couple of years ago uh, when silver was worth less than it is today probably, and it was worth $6 million. Verse 20, so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Now I want you to notice, compare verse 10 and verse 20. Paul is disputing daily in the school of Tyrannus. And it says, and this continued by the space of two years, verse 10, so that all they that which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. In other words, they had a revival that reached the whole of the continent of Asia. Now, it wasn't too long before, just in chapter uh, 16, the last part of chapter 15, early part of chapter 16, where Paul wanted to go into Asia and the Holy Ghost said, no, you can't go there. The Holy Spirit forbade him to go into Asia and he sent him into Macedonia instead. Uh, he wound up in the chief city of Macedonia, which is Philippi. But now, a couple of years later, maybe, he winds up in Ephesus and has a revival that reaches the whole of Asia. God knows how to reach people. 
The implication, to me at least, is that if they had gone to Asia in chapter 16 instead of Philippi where God wanted them to be, then Asia wouldn't have had the same results. Because it's not just about what to do, it's where do you want me to go do it. And Paul seemed to have that understanding. So, for two years, he stays in one place preaching in the school of Tyrannus. And all of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now notice verse 20, so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. What was it that caused, here's the city of Ephesus that's experiencing the greatest revival known to mankind at least up to that point, maybe ever. And the people that got saved, the people that heard Paul speak and got saved, many of them at least, were missing the real value of what Paul was preaching because they're still mixing Christianity in with their occult stuff. And it was only when they separated the other stuff out and got committed to the things of God wholly and and solely that the word of God grew mightily and prevailed. If that's true for a city, I wonder if that's true for us. Is that not a lesson to us as far as our attitude and the priority that the word of God should take in our lives if it's going to grow mightily and prevail? And I think, uh, just my opinion, you judge this for yourself, but I think this falls exactly into the explanation for why so many Christians are powerless. Because Christianity is just one of the things that's in their life. The Word of God is just, well, yes, the Bible, but, you know, it's subject to interpretations. Uh, this, this Phil Robertson Duck Dynasty brouhaha that's, that's going on right now. I am so sick of hearing people that don't know one thing about what the Bible says tell about what the Bible says. For goodness sakes, Somebody step up and say, you're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about on national TV. But these people stand there in their, 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 their nice suits and with their microphones and they declare, well, the Bible says this or the Bible doesn't say that. And I'm thinking, get somebody on that knows. But why is it like that? Because the Bible is just a book for so many Christians. Just a book. And they may say, well, you know, it contains the word of God. No, it doesn't. It is the Word of God. I heard one fellow uh, say something the other night uh, as a commentary on some of this stuff, and he said uh, something. I won't go into the whole thing, what he said. But one of the things that he said is, uh, you know, we've got to be tolerant of, of, of gays and lesbians, which, by the way, it, from what I read, the guy didn't say anything against the people that were involved in homosexuality. He was talking about the, the sin, the act of homosexuality itself. But anyway, this guy said, well, we've got to be tolerant. We've got to accept people no matter what God says, no matter what the Bible says, no matter whatever else anybody else says. I thought, you're probably going to see that replayed again in your future. Why doesn't the word of God prevail in people's lives? Because they don't accept it as God's word. If it is God's word, folks, it's infallible. If it is God's word, there is no plan B. If it is God's word, it doesn't matter what anybody else does say. It doesn't matter what politically correct position is. If it is God's word, that means it's the word of God. Which should be the end of the discussion for those of us who believe. Why isn't it? Because a lot of people that say they believe don't really qualify for what the Bible says about believing. Now, here's another point I want you to see. Let's talk about the seven sons of Siva. First of all, where it talks about them being vagabond Jews, exorcists, if what they had worked, they wouldn't have tried something else. So we're talking about frauds. We're talking about people that are shaking other people down for money. But then they find out through the signs and wonders and miracles that Paul is doing in Ephesus, they find out the teaching that Paul is doing, the declaration that he makes about the name of Jesus having power. They're so convinced of that that they're willing to go try it themselves. And they do exactly the same thing that Paul does, or at least that we see him do in in other cases. In this place, it says that God wrought wrought special miracles by his hand. Uh, Maybe I need to explain this a little bit. We seem to have the idea that everything works the same way with God all the time. And it doesn't. For example, if you go to chapter 16, you'll find that they came upon a little girl that was uh, held as a slave that was telling fortunes. 
There was a certain point in time after many days she would say things, uh, these men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. What she said was true, but I don't think God wants the devil advertising for it. So after many days, Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the spirit that was in her, not to her, not to the girl, but the spirit that was in her, come out of her in the name of Jesus. And it did. It came out that same hour. And that created a riot in the city because the the, the slave owner, the, the people that owned this uh, little girl, saw that their hope for, for money was gone. She can't tell fortunes anymore. When that evil spirit left, was cast out, she can't tell fortunes anymore. So that created a citywide riot, and they got thrown into jail, and you remember the story. Here, it talks about demons being cast out, and Paul doesn't seem to say anything. Notice verse 11 again. It said, And God wrought spiritual miracles by the hands of Paul. Verse 12, So that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. I have no doubt whatsoever that Paul is praying on these handkerchiefs or aprons in the name of Jesus, but it's not like he's standing there to whoever these claws go to and casting out devils. So here you've got delivering power, same delivering power that we saw in Acts chapter 16, by when he spoke over the girl and cast the devil out, now that delivering power is being uh, transmitted in a much different way. But either way, however the Holy Ghost leads you, the bottom, re- bottom line, the end result of this is that the seven sons of Siva are convinced of the power in the name of Jesus. So what do they do? They start using the name of Jesus. Well, now, folks, that sounds like a good thing to do, doesn't it? I mean, aren't we supposed to do that? And so they do. They go and they say, we adjure you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. Come out of them. Now, folks, if, it, if it's the name of Jesus itself alone that does the work, the evil spirits would have come out of this guy. You remember Mark chapter 16, Jesus said, These signs shall follow them that believe in my name. They shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. If they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and shall recover. Take up serpents, but that has to do with exercising authority over the devil. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. How is that going to happen? It's going to happen in the name of Jesus. These signs shall follow them that believe in my name. Why do those things not work for so many people? Smith Wilsworth said it this way. He said, volumes have been written and could still be written on that one little word, believe. Because it's not just the use of the word, the, the word Jesus or the name Jesus. It's not just that the, the declaration of that name that gets it done. It's believing in that name. Now, let me give you Wilsworth's definition of faith. There were different things, different ways that he would preach it. When he was talking about this, this is the definition he gave of faith, and I love this. Faith, or believing, is to know the one in whom you believe. Now, with that definition, would we be accurate to say, Mark chapter 16, and these signs shall follow those that know me and use my name. Well, maybe we have to define knowing him. Does that just mean saved? Apparently not. Again, Wigglesworth talked about that. He said, knowledge of Jesus comes from having a vision of him. Now, he's not talking about uh, a, a spiritual vision. He's not talking about, you know, the heavens open and Jesus appearing to you and stuff like that. He's talking about coming to the knowledge of who Jesus is through his word. Now, folks, we started with Paul. Saul, before his name was changed. And now in chapter 16, I'm sorry, chapter 19, we see Paul clothed with the Spirit of God. We see him clothed with rage in Acts chapter 8 and 9. So much so that he's breaking into people's houses. He's not waiting and interrupting services in the streets. He's going into people's houses to put them in jail. Consumed with rage, with hatred. Now he's clothed with the Holy Ghost. What made that change? Who are you, Lord? And what do you want me to do? Those two questions were the ones that Paul lived by. I'm going to come back to this in just a minute, but let me read to you from Philippians chapter 3. Paul, writing back to the Philippians, the same city in which Acts chapter 16 takes place, where he cast the devil out of that little girl. 
exercise the power of God. He talks about himself and the thing in some of his past life. He said in verse 8, Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Notice, whenever you see Paul talk about the knowledge of Jesus, take notice of the dignity that he uses when he describes it. Take notice of the, of the, um, the reverence that he, he shows it. This is not something, yeah, we need to know, we all, we all need to know Jesus. No. He holds the knowledge of Jesus as something that's above every other thing in his life. I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung or garbage that I may win Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is of the, through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. How does that come? Through the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. Verse 10. That I may know him. And the power of his resurrection. And the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. If I, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. In other words, the thing that made the difference between Paul and, and the man that was consumed by hatred. And Paul, who was the conduit, who was the pipeline in Acts chapter 19 for the power of God, is that he put one thing first in his life, and that was the knowledge of who Jesus is. Now, folks, I would submit to you, Paul didn't have to. He didn't have to do that. He could have been just like an ordinary Christian. He could have met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he could have said, wow, I, okay, I've learned my lesson, Jesus. I'll never persecute you anymore. I'll never put anybody else in jail. I'll just move away. If I stay here, the Jews are going to be upset with me because I'm not doing their thing anymore. So I'll just move to another country. I'll try out Rome. That's not a big hotbed of Christianity. I'll just go there. Paul was a Roman citizen. He could travel anywhere he wanted to. He didn't have to follow the Lord. Didn't have to at all. He could have done like so many other Christians and known that God had something for him to do but refused to do it. Oh, yeah, but Pastor Mike, wouldn't that have cost him his life? Does it cost Christians their lives now? Eventually, it'll bring a, a an unintended consequence. It may even shorten your life. But God doesn't get you overnight. And we're all lucky he doesn't. Paul didn't have to do this. The vision that he had of Jesus... And I don't even know what that is. But the vision that Paul had of Jesus was such that it turned his life 180 degrees around. Now, just as much as he was consumed with hatred for the church, he's consumed with finding out who Jesus is. And notice how it results. It results in signs and wonders and miracles. It results in Paul now being clothed with the Spirit of God and the power of God rather than the things that he had on him before. To believe in Jesus is to know who he is. Now, how does that relate to healing? Well, I wonder how many of our prayers, our meaning not us specifically, hopefully we don't fall into this category. And, and uh, Wigglesworth said this too. Uh, there was, um, I don't want to get in a lot of detail. Um, okay, I'll, I'll say it this way. Wigglesworth said that there was a climax to Paul's life. He said there was a progression and a climax. Everything is progressing forward. Everything is progressing upward spiritually. Everything is progressing in Paul's life because he's, he's reaching out to know more and more of Jesus. He's coming to the place where he's willing, in the end, he's willing to suffer all things for Jesus. He's willing to even lose his own salvation if Israel could be saved, according to his own testimony. That's what he wrote in one of his letters, letter to the Romans. He said, I'd be willing to give up my own salvation if the Jews could be saved. That doesn't sound like a man consumed with hatred. The Jews are the ones trying to kill him. 
at the time he writes that. The Jews are the ones that are stirring up trouble against him and persecuting him everywhere he goes. He seems to have gotten over the personal aspect of it, doesn't he? That I might know him. That was Paul's focus in his life, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Folks, let me tell you something. This may not be good news. You may rather me just stop here and not tell you this part, but I've got to tell you the truth. There is no real knowledge of Jesus until you fellowship in his sufferings. Now, we face people, we don't like to hear that because we're real strong on the devil being the one that causes trouble, and he does. We're real strong on, on God meeting all your needs, and he will. We're real strong on being able to use the authority in the name of Jesus to overcome anything and everything the devil does in your life, and, and you can. But you can't be friends with the world and know Jesus. There comes a point where you have to accept that if I'm going to live the Jesus life, if I'm going to be an example of the life of God, including His power, including His authority, if I'm going to be that example, there are going to be people that the devil stirs up against me. And Paul made that one of the focuses. He said, I want to know Him, I want to know the power of His resurrection, and I want to know the fellowship of His sufferings. That's a changed man. That's a changed man. Wigglesworth explained it this way. He said, you've got to come to the place where you lose yourself in Jesus. You've got to come to the place where you accept the word of God to be true and quit worrying about how you want things to be. And not too many people are willing to do that. And, and in my opinion, again, you judge this for yourself. That's the real test for how much we want of God. I think a lot of us want God as long as he does what we want him to do. But that's the part you've got to lose. You've got to come to the place where, Lord, I don't care how it goes. Because I know you're going to see me through. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you accept sickness and you say, well, okay, whatever. That's not of God. I'm not saying you accept the things of the devil as just, oh, well, I'll suffer through this. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what Jesus said. They that live godly in Christ shall suffer persecution. Well, Paul said that. But Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they hated me, they'll hate you. Can I ask you a question? Why doesn't the world hate us more? They're supposed to. If we're living right, they're supposed to. Now, it seems to be increasing in these days. So we may get there without a whole lot of work. Who knows? But that's the way that the Bible says it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be such. Uh, we're supposed to be such a copy. Of the life of Jesus. That the world goes out of its way to hate us. Now, you know, one of the reasons that Paul said those three things that he was after to know him, the power of his resurrection and the uh, fellowship of his sufferings. You want to know why? Because when you are hated by the world, when you are persecuted because of Jesus and you can be persecuted because you do stupid things, you know, that doesn't count to your credit. But when people hate you, when people come against you as an individual or us as the church, when people come against us because of our relationship with God, that's when the power of God shows up the strongest. We've told you this before. We've got friends, uh, uh, well, in just about uh, all over the world. But there are, uh, there. Well, I won't even tell you what country this is from. But there are missionary friends that we've got that are in that country. That that country has been praying for America for a long time. Praying for America to wake up. Praying for the church of God to wake up and that the power of God would be seen. And you know how they're praying? They're praying that the church would be persecuted in America. Because that's when you see the power of God show up. When the devil raises his head, that's where you see the power of God manifest. How does that apply to healing school? Very simply this, folks. The key to receiving your healing is to know who Jesus is in the area of healing. 
We're not talking about just being saved. We're talking about knowing. I'm reminded of Acts chapter 14 where Paul goes to the city of of, uh, Lystra. And he's preaching there for the first time. Verse 8 says, and there he preached the gospel. And a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, crippled from his mother's womb, who had never walked, heard Paul speak. Heard Paul speak. Who, steadfastly beholding him, and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped and walked. One sermon. One sermon. Spoken from a man who now has come to know the Jesus that he was persecuting. Now, folks, it's impossible. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. It would have been impossible for the man to have faith to be healed if he hadn't heard Paul talk about Jesus being the healer. It would have been impossible for him to be healed if he hadn't heard Paul preach that Jesus took your sicknesses and bore your infirmities. And that faith... That acceptance of Paul's knowledge of Jesus was enough to bring that man out of a lifelong condition of paralysis. I want to leave you with one last thought. And that's back over in Acts chapter 19. You remember when the evil spirit spoke up from that man and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? God is well satisfied, willing that the devil know you in the same way that he knows Jesus and that he knew Paul. He's willing and satisfied for you to be so clothed with the power of God that the devil knows you just as much as he knew Jesus on the earth. Think about that. Think about what the power of Pentecost was all about. Think about what Jesus really meant in that context when he said, tarry ye in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. Think about the power that's available to us so that the devil knows when you wake up in the morning. That power is what God enabled God to do special miracles by the hands of Paul. And it all comes down to the knowledge of Jesus. I want to make a suggestion for a Christmas present for you this year. Ask Jesus to reveal himself to you. Ask him to give him a vision, give you a vision of him like you've never had before. Be willing for 2014 to be a year of persecution. For living the righteousness of God. And the holiness of God. And the power of God because of the vision we have of Jesus. If we do that. Seeing signs and wonders and miracles be a piece of cake. I think some of the difficulty is we're trying to get God to do miracles on our terms. We want convenient miracles so that everybody thinks we're great. Jesus wants miracles so that his name is glorified. And not everybody's into that. Not everybody's accepting of that. Not everybody wants to hear that. And that's where the fellowship of his sufferings come in. Folks, this is going to be a great year. I'm telling you, 2014 is going to be a great year. It's going to be a year where we see the things of God in manifestation that we've been praying for for a long time. But we've got to be ready for it. We've got to be in the right frame of mind. Why don't you stand together with me? Let me lead you in a confession. Close your eyes and say this after me. Don't just repeat the words that I'm saying, but let your heart agree with them. Think about what you're saying. Lord Jesus, I'm righteous because you're righteous and you live in me. I'm holy because you're holy 
and your blood has cleansed me. I'm not righteous or holy because of what I do, but because of what you've done. Thank you for the righteousness of God that I've been made. I'm an overcomer because of Christ's victory. The greater one lives in me and I am filled with power to overcome every problem and to help every person in need because the greater one lives in me. Jesus, reveal yourself to me. Let me be even as Paul whose desire was to know you and the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your sufferings. Show us, Lord, how to live the Jesus life to set other people free. Amen. Amen. Let's just wait on him a moment to see if there's anything else he wants us to do before we go. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you, Father, for the gift. Your life that lives in us. We know the blood of Jesus made us worthy, Father, but let us live in such a way that we are that we are worthy of the life of God that's been entrusted to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us. Don't forget uh, Christmas Eve service Tuesday night at six. If you can't Come and be with us for that. Have a Merry Christmas. And we'll see you next week.